Good morning. Good morning. Good morning again. Today, I'd like to talk a little bit about a really important topic, attention, what we pay attention to. So, of course, this is what Shakyamuni Buddha spent many years talking about and doing himself, paying attention, paying attention to what he paid attention to. But I want to weave it together with the, a really important other topic of the natural world, our relationship with the natural world, our relationship with our land, the creatures on the land, our relationship with this land right here in Houston and our relationship to it and how we pay attention to it. So we all have, we're all grown-ups, so we all have ways of paying attention already that we've refined over the years. And now we're, we get an opportunity to do things a little bit differently. But first, something about attention itself. So many of you had the opportunity of being outside in the retreat last weekend with Con Maite and Constance. How many of you here had that opportunity? Fantastic. Did you notice some new things? Yeah. So you were outside in the mist and the dark night and the cool and the warm and inside doing all those things also. Fantastic experience. So we're benefiting just right now, just by thinking about it, thinking about the benefit that you received. Thank you. Some of you were intense, I believe. Oh, oh. And some of you were indoors and in the zendo. So I, uh, you had your experience and you um, heard about earth and water and air and what else? Fire the elements and what you experienced out there was guided not by your own previous experience but also by what you heard which transforms what you can pay attention to did you notice that so i myself experienced this here on sunday when i heard virtually maite's talk about water and will i ever experience water the same after hearing that talk <laughs> No. <laughs> Thinking about the water that I'm about to drink, having come from interstellar explosions unimaginable times ago, landing on the earth and then being evaporated and la somehow landing in my tea kettle, <laughs> intermingling with some green tea leaves from countless, unbelievable, long time impossible to comprehend the time involved in this. And here it is, a cup of green water. So thank you very much. I haven't yet listened to Constance's talk on Earth. I'm not sure if it's on the website yet. It is? Okay, I'll listen soon. But just the concept of Earth and our relationship to it um, has been changed by hearing some of the comments she's made. Was your relationship to it changed? Oh, I'm so happy. So happy to hear that. So, can I continue in the stream? Stream of talk. So, the nature of attention that Constance and Maite brought it brought to our attention uh, when you were there and you 
And even now, as you hear these words, you are cooperating, you are participating in the change. You're hearing some words, you're hearing some new concepts, and then by voluntarily bringing your attention to it, you're participating in being changed. This is why, one of the demonstrations of why our attention is so important. It's what changes us, actually. What we attend to makes our world. So attending to what surrounds us, the nature of attending, uh, identifies certain things as important, as in relation to us, and other things as not seen, not important, no connection is recognized. So I think what happened in for those of us in the retreat last weekend, a connection was recognized and then actually strengthened. So the way we use our attention voluntarily and involuntarily is now shaped by the fact that we're grown-ups. We've got a lot of data in there. And then when we hear new things, we, we kind of need to voluntarily choose which ones are going to go into the mix now. So we're kind of predisposed to pay attention to some things. We already have interests. We already have things that we're kind of more interested in. I will soon be going to Thanksgiving at my family. And there's a lot of information in that household about baseball. <laughs> and I will hear stats and histories and, you know, coaching decisions and lots of it is going to flow right through <laughs> but really impressive networks have been built in the minds of some of my loved ones so <laughs> and then i'll be in the kitchen baking and this this year i've been asked to bake a um i always make the pies this year i've been asked to make a non-dairy chocolate cream pie because one of our new young relatives is uh, lactose intolerant. And they, when I was told this, they said, oh, I hope you can find a recipe that works, non-dairy chocolate cream pie. And for me, I have this vast network of baking knowledge. And it's like, no problem. <laughs> Are you sure? No problem. <laughs> so we'll see how they said, did you try it first? No. <laughs> <laughs> so we're grown-ups and we have a lot of choice in now what we're going to strengthen, which is what you know the teachings of Buddhism are really about. But I want to read you this what it's like to be a child. This is kind of old language. I hope you like it. We start off differently. Sensitiveness to immediately exciting sensorial stimuli characterizes the attention of childhood and youth. Sensitivity to immediately stimulating, stim exciting sensorial stimuli. We're kind of, we pick and choose what we're going to allow ourselves to be sensitive to. In mature age, we have generally selected those stimuli which are connected with one or more so-called permanent interests, and our attention has grown irresponsive to the rest. You notice that? You guys are easily ignoring what's happening outside. If you were a child, you would not find that so easy. But childhood is characterized by great active energy and has few organized interests by which to meet new impressions and decide whether they are worthy of notice or not. 
And the consequence is that extreme mobility of the attention with which we are all familiar in children and which makes their first lessons such rough affairs. Pay attention. Oh, I can't. Everything's so interesting. Any strong sensation, whatever, produces accommodation of the organs which precede it and absolute oblivion for the time being of the task in hand. (laughs) (laughs) This reflex and passive character of the attention, which, as a French writer says, makes the child seem to belong less to herself than to every object which happens to catch his notice, is the first thing which the teacher must overcome. It never is overcome in some people whose work to the end of life gets done in the interstices of their mind wandering. Sound familiar? <laughs> the children. So when we, ha- when we are children, when we have the mind of a child, everything catches our attention. Everything is interesting. But by the time we are past the teen years, we, we do have these organized interests. The mind wandering of childhood is infrequent. One way to say this is that everything interests a child, but we grown-ups are interested by things. Things that catch our interest are things that are different from what we expect, things that are moving, things that are surprise, and, of course, scary things. Those things catch our interest, even if we're, there are a few other things, but uh, we've organized everything into categories and we slip it in. This is a skill, an important skill. But when we do pay attention, it's interesting to know, like I'm choosing to pay attention to Jizo, the big, beautiful uh, earth store bodhisattva right there. Our ability to pay attention, this is old theory, but verified in recent research, it's actually very brief. I can only pay attention for a brief time, and the illusion that we can pay attention for a long time is just the, is the result of us finding something new. Okay, now I'm seeing his staff. Now I'm seeing the jewel in his hand. I can't just pay attention to something uniformly for a long time. We're not built that way. Isn't that interesting? So we're built to be alert to new things and to have to make a choice about what we're going to pay attention to. So the choice, the choices, our choices to what we attend to are essentially moral choices, what we're going to pay attention to. So what we decide to be retain an interest in is basically a moral choice. It's not a mechanistic choice determined by all of our past, past lives. We're making a choice, what we're going to pay attention to. And we're, got, we're going to be um, flavoring our mind. So that's a quote. No one can possibly attend continuously to an object that does not change. Isn't that interesting? We have to have change. So voluntary attention is not subject to our will forever. We have to find something new. So I'm going to pay attention It's fun to have people in front of you because now I look at this person, now I look at this person, oh, that person has moved. So the uh, one of the great quotes from William James is about attention. Each of us literally chooses 
is emphasis. Each of us literally chooses by our way of attending to things what sort of a universe we shall appear to ourselves to inhabit. We literally choose what sort of universe appears to us. Nice to know, isn't it? When we're seeing the universe one way and when we, um, it's not that we, we make what's happening out there, but how we choose to see it makes our universe. So our master plan has begun. Um, we are, for years we've been in a strategic plan and most of you have heard about it. And if you're hearing about it for the first time, this is an important function in the way attention works. We need to hear about things several times before it becomes one of our interests. So if you haven't heard about Houston Zen Center's strategic plan and master plan, let me just say it again. Houston Zen Center's strategic <laughs> plan and master plan. <laughs> those of you who have heard about it, this world begins to grow. Kind of, kind of pouring water on it and it's, it's growing and blossoming awareness of the master plan. So we took the next step on Wednesday, last Wednesday, was it? Yeah, with Michael, our, our guide, and some professionals were gathered together in a team and um, naturalists and botanists and prairie experts and architects and several of us met to walk the land and walk through the buildings. And this changed my perspective on the land forever. It's amazing. So to walk on land that you think you know with people who have organized interests that, are, that have made them specialists in natural prairies, to walk on land that you think you know with those people, it's like, oh my God, I know nothing about this land. All I know is that there's a bunch of green stuff over there. <laughs> Some of it's very tall and it's like a tree. But to walk on the land and to hear, you know, their love for prairies and their love and awareness of what is the most healthy way for that land to be supported and which plants to encourage and which plants have been introduced by um Basically, there's this thing called KR Blue Stem, King Ranch Blue Stem, which was just introduced to line our highways and grow really fast and cover the land. It's kind of pretty, but it now covers too much of Texas. So it was basically, I believe, kind of grafted onto another native plant, but it's changed. And unfortunately, it's not very nutritious for cows either. It was just designed to be a ground cover. It does that very well. <laughs> so we learned about that, even though it's kind of pretty. And so my first view and your view when you're out there with, you know, regular, should I say regular mind, mind that doesn't know much about plants is a great sea of green, waving, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. When you're with a naturalist, you see What's really attractive is like right over there, there's a stand of this plant that's about this tall and it's growing up in a bunch and it's called little blue stem. And they made like a beeline for this plant. Oh, look, there's little blue stem. And it makes these little bunches and grows up tall. And now I see little blue stem. So 
what you want to know about little blue stem is that it likes to grow on these clumps. It has really deep roots. So it helps the soil, it kind of turns up the soil and holds it in place. And around little blue stem are other little plants whose names I forget because I don't have the organized place yet for it. Something like triple maw, very interesting plants. And this John, one of the incredible naturalists, held up this tiny, he sort of, he picked up this tiny piece of life with three little things. And he said, see, here it is. <laughs> How did you find that? So I held on to it for a while but I couldn't find any more because my mind isn't organized to see this. So walking that land, they found an area that is in the corner. If you remember our land, North West corner, little dip, and it looks kind of patchy. You see brown earth and this little blue stem. They said, this is the anchor. This is super healthy. <laughs> and one of the things that demonstrates that it's healthy is the brown patchiness. So when there is a, a field of this waving uniform grass experience, little animals can't make it through. Mm -hmm. They need the little bare patches around the big plants to make little pathways. And little mammals and ground-dwelling birds need those little pathways. So our healthy prairie out there will look kind of patchy rather than like a lawn, won't be uniform. And the greenness of the current dominant species in some parts, that green of the KR blue stem is characteristic of that. But if we have the little blue stem, often it'll be sort of orangey red. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. So I'm creating and I'm sharing with you and I couldn't actually hear all that they were saying because it's too new for me. But these are things I heard. And one of the reasons I heard some of it was because Mary Carroll had told me about some of it before. So there was a pocket in my brain, a little anchor that I could start to grow. The thing that Mary Carroll told me about um, has to do with the way you care for little blue stem. And I, some of the naturalists were talking about this, and they were very nice people. One of the things I liked about them was, um, of course, their deep expertise. But, for instance, when the naturalists were inside the buildings, they were like, oh, it's very interesting. But, <laughs> but when they were outside, it was laser focus. Oh, yeah, here it is, this plant, this plant, this plant. Total, totally focused, yeah. And the same with the architects. When they're out on the land, they're collecting these pretty little things. Oh, it's nice. But then when they're in the buildings, it's like, huh. <laughs> it's so fun to see people in their area. So Mary Carroll had told me about something about little blue stem, which is these bunch grasses. The, um, one of the naturalists had said something about how uh, either we overmanage land or we think that the natural way to handle it is to just let it let it be, just let it go. And it's somewhere in the middle because we have anciently managed the land. We are part of the land. We're one of the creatures that the land needs to make little pathways for. We're a creature of the land. And from ancient times, native people 
indigenous people here, the blue stem grasses, they would kind of fool around with and take stalks and make baskets. So they were managing the, the grasses. And uh, also the grasses were munched by vast, unimaginably vast herds of buffalo waving across this land and stomped on. And little blue stem, stem grass likes that relationship with the humans and with the buffalo. It doesn't like to be left alone. And so we, in relationship, we need to be in relationship to that land. The way to take care of it isn't to ignore it. It's for us to learn how it wants us to relate to it. And it wants us to relate to the grasses. I knew this because Mary Carroll had told me, she gave me a book called Braiding Sweetgrass, which I highly recommend. Beautiful book. And um, they did a test, this botanist, also happened to be a Native American woman and a botanist did a test of a field, some fields of bunch grasses. And they left, they did one field with highly managed, one field left to be natural, and one field that the basket weavers would go in and take things out. First field was like harvested on a, like a, you know, schedule. This one was harvested with the na native people um, examining each plant and taking what they needed. So which of the fields did best, do you think? The, the one with the human relationship in it. Yeah. And the one that was left alone, the plants get clogged. They can't expand. They wither. So that's part of what I learned. And the reason I was part of the reason I was able to learn that part was because I had a little knowledge beforehand. So that's 72% of why I'm telling you about this is to <laughs> expand these little pockets of knowledge so that when you go out there, it will look different. And when we start to do the work that we need to do, you'll be happy to see little brown patches. Mm -hmm. So again, each of us literally chooses by our way of attending to things what sort of a universe we shall appear to ourselves to inhabit. So I was cooperating in the change of my mind, and I was actually trying very hard. So I was putting some effort into the voluntary attention I was paying, and I was really, really appreciating that there was so much information that a lot of it flowed past. That's also the nature of learning. And uh, Michael kept great notes, so I can go back and restore my knowledge. And there's another really interesting story out there in the tree groves. So how many of you been, have been in the trees? Okay. So one of our efforts, as soon as we started working out there, even before we became the owners and land was transferred to our care, um, the grove of trees had become impenetrable. So one of our first efforts was to break through the um, barrier of bushes because we knew it was choked. It, it's not right. You know, the trees need to breathe. So we broke through in a few places and we made some trails. And I was kind of proud of that. Um, 
the naturalists, I don't think, appreciated it enough. So. <laughs> 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 they just sort of took it for granted that they could walk around in there. I was thinking, we worked really hard to make this possible. But they were at the next level. And Michelle um, said she walked through it the day before we walked through it together. And she identified it as a series of rooms in that big swath of groves. And there's one room which has very significant giant sycamore trees. And it makes kind of a room because it has plants around it and ground around it that kind of cohesive, coherent. And then there's another area that's big pecan trees. And then there's kind of an oak forest. And they had great thoughts about how to nurture these environments, which are still choked by undergrowth, which would be nibbled by bison. So we have to go in there and pretend we're bison, <laughs> nibble it out and, and have a relationship with these, with these forests. I was interested in like how she identified it. Now it's easy to say it's a sycamore room, but I, I thought of an analogy. It's like, if you go into a house, you know you're in a dining room because there's this giant dining table there. We have that now. She knew she was in a sycamore room. She knew all the trees. It was very beautiful. And which plants would be nearby. So here's a question. I'm giving and sharing this uh, information. And some of you know a lot more than I do about it, which is wonderful. Um, and so here's the question. Do Would it be good if all of us took to this wholeheartedly and became plant and tree experts. So I think that's what we should do. I've got one nod. I mean, one shake, several shakes. <laughs> all of us already have organized campus. It isn't necessary that we all become plant and small animal advocates. Is that okay? It's important to know that other people are taking care of it. It's not important that we all take this on equally. And why? It doesn't change our effectiveness. So um, have, how many of you have been to the San Francisco Bay Area? Okay. How many of you know what it looks like? Everybody. Okay. San Francisco Bay Area has a lot of green space, doesn't it, around the peninsula there, tons of green space. And then across the bridge, all of Marin County has an enormous amount of green space. Why is that so? Why would that be so? Because it's a very appealing place to live. Why isn't it covered with houses? So it was starting to get covered with houses and there were um, several army bases at the Golden Gate Bridge on both sides of the Golden Gate Bridge because it was an important what do they call that? Anyway, it was an important area during the all these wars that we've had, and there hmm? at the Presidio, and the um, and Fort Mason, and on the hills on San Francisco, there are still those concrete bunkers that were used for defense. All of that, all of that is part of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, and it was a big fight. And I um, lived there then, actually. I was still in school, and the uh, remember there was a time, some of you will remember, when various army bases didn't need to be kept active anymore, and they were decommissioning. It's happened here, too. 
And then what was going to be done with them? Would they be privatized and turn into housing or would they become part of a park? Big fight. And one of the leaders of the fight whom I, I saw was this guy named Philip Burton. And he was actually the main driver to get the national Golden Gate National Recreation Area turned into a national park. It surrounds Green Gulch. And in fact, there was a move several years ago to absorb Green Gulch into the national forest. And Green Gulch Farm Zen Center was able to demonstrate with a series of satellite photos that it had taken such good care of the land, it should be allowed to continue to be an inholding in the national forest. Same with Tassajara. It's an inholding inside a national wilderness area. But there's such good store stewards. It's allowed to keep ownership. Okay. The point of my story is not that, you know, that happened because it was a great thing. President Nixon came out to sign it. He's the one who allowed it to go through in 1972. My story is about Philip Burton. What do you think Philip Burton was like? He must have been like a naturalist, right? Really like to be outdoors? No, he hated being outdoors. <laughs> he hated all this wilderness stuff, but he knew it was super important for life and for the quality of life of all those people. If you met him, he was a very distinguished looking guy, city lawyer and um, uh, congressman and very shiny shoes. That's what I remember. City, <laughs> city shoes, smoked a lot. It's like, do we, do we have to go and look at it now? <laughs> but he made it happen. So I don't think Philip Burton, he passed away, homage to Philip Burton. He didn't know the names of any of those plants, <laughs> but he protected them. So that's an important story and an, for me and an important demonstration of the background of my thinking of why everybody doesn't need to become a naturalist to protect the land. We have many reasons for protecting the land. And just knowing that it needs our protection is enough. How you relate to it will be based on our individual um, preferences. So voluntary attention, that's what I've been talking about. This is voluntary attention, which you have. You can take your attention right now and put it on something. This is a moral choice. But we also need to do the other kind of attention, the unfocused attention. We need access to that too. We're not supposed to Buddha didn't say we're supposed to always be in charge of our trying to take our attention and control it. No, we just acknowledge what we're doing with it. And then we give it a break. We have unfocused attention time. And I talked about this a little bit uh, last month. One of the very effective ways of giving ourselves this unfocused attention, I think Constance and Maite provided it last weekend by forest bathing. Did you do some forest bathing? Well, we didn't go into the forest because it was muddy, mm -hmm. but we did walk through the fields and through the trees. Land bathing. Land bathing, <laughs> sky and grass bathing. Okay. So the, the um, benefits of taking this human body into its ancient savanna land is really powerful for us. That is what we like, actually. In the ancient, um, when you when you 
cognitive research shows this to be true too. Human, the human mind feels safest when it can look across a grassland and see predators. <laughs> <laughs> so you're safe. You're looking across, there are no predators. This grassland, it is the most comforting vista for humans, apparently. And going into the grove of trees is dangerous. There's mud there. <laughs> and opossums. <laughs> so forest bathing is the time when we put things behind and just go in unencumbered and walk. The recommendation is that you do it for two hours. The other recommendation is... Leave behind your phone, camera, music, <laughs> and any other distractions. Number two, leave behind your expectations. Number three, the hardest one, slow down, forget about the time. Number four, come into the present moment and find a spot to sit on the grass, beside a tree, or on a bench. That's what we should have in there, a few benches, I think. Mm. Six, notice what you can hear and see. Seven, notice what you feel. Eight, stay for two hours if possible. Though, the author says, you will begin to notice the effects after 20 minutes. So even walking itself allows involuntary thinking to happen. Thinking itself isn't bad. Just letting yourself think. That's what we're built to do. The mind turning, thinking, moving, involuntary. But your experience is what you agree to attend to. Lots of thoughts go through the mind. But what I agree to attend to is what accumulates into my experience. So this is what the Buddha was studying when he woke up. So we're getting ready in two weeks. December 3rd, we're going to have our ceremony to uh, honor the Buddha's awakening, after which there was teaching for decades, still to this day, thousands of years later, appreciating the effort that that person made. So Thanksgiving week coming up. Be generous with your attention, I would say, is my request, and experience some gratitude. Notice what you're feeling gratitude for. Put your attention on things that you can feel grateful for. Be generous with the people you pay attention to. Be really generous. Give attention to all those people and beings that you're going to run into that will thrive with your attention. All the creatures and, and plants on our land are going to thrive with our attention. And our goal during this master plan is to inform our attention so we can take care of it even more appropriately. It's okay that, I'm saying this to myself, it's okay that you don't know everything about this yet. <laughs> There's a lot to learn, probably many mistakes to make going ahead. But um, for this coming week, gratitude and attention is what I wish for us all. Thank you very much. <laughs>